So we're now into our third week of uh, our study of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Let's just recap some of the key themes uh, that we've considered so far. Firstly, Paul made the point that uh, every human being is sinful by nature. By that, he means that we all have a propensity to rebel against God in the things that we think and say and do. Uh, What's more, we saw that our sin is both deliberate and inexcusable. Uh, Secondly, and this is a bad news, sin leads to death. Not only the uh, physical death that all of us will someday experience, but also what the Bible calls the second death, kind of spiritual death or separation from God. So there we have the problem. Humanity's relationship with God has been fractured, and that has dire consequences, not just uh, for humanity itself, but for the whole of creation. Thirdly, and most importantly, there is hope. This is the good news. Human beings may be put right with God. That broken relationship may be restored. And there are two options for getting right with God, law and grace, but only one of them works. So let's look at the one that doesn't work first, law. Uh, The Israelites were given the law by God, and it's contained in the first five books of the Bible. The law is good. The problem is that nobody is capable of keeping it. No matter how hard a person might try, they will always break some aspect of the law. And if you've broken part of it, you've broken all of it. What the law did was to bring about an awareness of sin. There's a law, we find it impossible to keep it, and therefore we realize that we are lawbreakers. We realize that we are sinful. Romans 3 verse 20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Moreover, Paul tells us that the law, even though it's good, it arouses and reveals our sinfulness. He said, it says this in Romans 7, verses 7 to 8. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. That's what we've just been saying. Uh, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he's using coveting as an example. And then he says, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of of coveting. So we know that uh, coveting is being jealous of what other people have. Now, if no one had ever talked to you about coveting, you wouldn't really know what it was. And you certainly wouldn't know that it was wrong. But as soon as someone explains coveting to you, it's like lifting the curtain on all our covetousness. When I was a child, my mother uh, once told me that my Uncle Peter had fired a firework through somebody's letterbox uh, when he was a child. And she warned me never to do anything so silly or dangerous. Well, I'd never thought of doing that. Now, all of a sudden, it seemed like quite an appealing idea. And I must admit, I did some equally silly and dangerous things with fireworks, which are a lot more available in the UK than they are here. Uh, But my mother's warning not to be silly or dangerous really just revealed the fact that I had a natural inclination towards being silly and dangerous. So the law is good, but it didn't help the Jews, and it doesn't help us, because none of us are capable of keeping it. The only other option is grace. 
And last week we saw that we can be put right with God. But that right relationship, that righteousness is not dependent on anything that we do. We don't deserve it. We can't make it happen. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. It's a free gift of God's grace and it is received by faith. We are made right with God by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. We are made right with God by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. If we have not understood that, we have not understood the gospel. And Lucy speaking, today's passage shows us that being under grace has three outcomes. A new life, a new master, and a new direction. So firstly, a new life. When we put our faith in Jesus, the power of the cross takes effect in our lives. And the reason uh, it does so is because when we have put our faith in Jesus, we are in Christ. In Christ. That is the commonest description of a follower of Jesus in the New Testament. But what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we are inside Christ, as uh, John Stott said, like a, a tool in a toolbox or clothes in a wardrobe. It actually means that we are organically united to Christ. As a limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree, that's why the church is known as the body of Christ. That is why Jesus said that he is the vine and we are the branches. So if we are inextricably linked to Christ, it means that what happened to Jesus happened to us. Verses 3 to 4 say, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we're in Christ, the penalty for our sin has been paid for by Jesus. And that's because when Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was buried, we were buried. When Jesus rose to new life, we rose to new life. Uh, Baptism is a sacrament that points towards this mystery. Now, sacrament is an outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Baptism points us to something much deeper happening within the life of a Christian. Going beneath the water, imagine the full immersion baptism, someone going underneath the water represents uh, them dying with Jesus and being buried with him. And when that person comes up out of the water, it represents them rising with Jesus to new life. We receive new life, eternal life. We are adopted into God's family as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. If we are in Christ, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. And this is very good news. And it all comes to us as a free gift of grace. There's nothing we can do to earn this, to merit it, or to deserve it. But all of this can, and did, and still does, lead to a very dangerous argument. In response to this teaching, people were saying, well, if that's the case, doesn't really matter if we go on sinning. In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says this, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And it's true, isn't it? The more we sin, the more gracious God is in offering us everything. 
You know, if someone accidentally bumps into you and they spill their coffee all down you and they're apologetic and you say, it's okay, don't worry. In fact, let me buy you another coffee. That's quite gracious, isn't it? Uh, but then what if someone steals your wallet and you catch them uh, and they seem like they're sorry and actually they look like they're a bit hungry as well, so you take them out for something to eat? Well, that's even more gracious, isn't it? What if someone does something really heinous? What if someone murders a member of your family? and then pleads for forgiveness. And you not only forgive them, but you adopt them into your family and love them as your own. I've heard of one very moving example of that happening. Well, that is phenomenally gracious, isn't it? The greater the sin, the greater the opportunity for grace. So the argument went like this. Well, if we can do nothing to earn our salvation, and if our sin reveals God's grace and his goodness, well, then maybe we should keep on sinning. It's probably quite a good thing that we do because it just shows who God really is. But Romans 6 makes it clear that the reality of being made right with God by faith, what the Bible calls justification by faith, does not produce Christians who are apathetic about the reality of sin in their lives. Let me say that again. The reality of being made right with God by faith does not produce Christians who are apathetic, who don't really worry about the reality of sin in their lives. And this is because we not only have a new life, but we serve a new master. Allow me to read two crucial verses from chapter 6. Verse 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. That's the in Christ bit. So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. And then verse 18. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We are told explicitly that sin enslaves The nature and destiny of those who are not in Christ is governed and ruled by sin. And we cannot break free from sin by our own efforts. Uh, Of course, there are people who are broken free of addictions, uh, you know, largely through their own effort. We all know someone who's given up smoking or given up drinking. There are people who have made positive changes to their character um, by working at it. Um, You know, they become more loving or less angry or more forgiving or whatever it is. So in a sense, there might be a way that we can break free from specific sin. That's the argument that some people might use, although without Christ, I don't think we ever really do even break free of specific sins. But even if we were allowed for, to, to, to allow for that, a single brick removed from a cell wall does not constitute a prison break. We are only true from our old master when we pledge our allegiance to a new one. In other words, our slavery to sin only ends when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. I want to adapt an illustration from a man called Stuart Olliott to explain how this works. So there was once a slave who spent his whole life locked in a compound, being exploited by a cruel and tyrannical master. He lived in misery, never able to rest. He was subjected to vicious beatings and back-breaking labor. He knew that if he didn't escape, his master would one day kill him. But there was no way out. He tried to escape on numerous occasions, and he'd realized that it was utterly impossible. Now, the king of the land knew about this uh, poor slave's plight, 
And out of love, he devised a wonderful plan to set him free. Now, this sounds like a strange thing to do, and we needn't consider all the details, but the king had the slave killed by crucifixion. The slave was crucified and was dead. When the cruel master found his slave dead, he realized that he could no longer make any demands of him. It spelled a permanent end to the master-slave relationship that had existed for so long. The tyrant no longer had any jurisdiction or authority over the slave. How could he? He couldn't ask him to do anything. He was dead. So the slave's body was buried. And then along came the king, and he raised the slave to new life, raised him from the dead, and took him home to his palace. Now, the slave was overwhelmed with gratitude to the king who had, uh, who had saved him in such a surprising and powerful way. The old relationship between the slave and that cruel master was ended by the slave's death. And yet, the slave was alive. Having been given this newness of life, the, the slave realized uh, that there was only one to whom he could give his allegiance. There's only one to whom he could now serve. He was dead to his old master and alive to the new one. He was dead to sin and alive to Christ. Being freed from slavery to sin does not free us from any and every obligation. We have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness or slaves of Christ, as it says elsewhere in the New Testament. And with a new master comes a new direction. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are moved from darkness to light. We're transferred from death to life, from exclusion from God's kingdom to inclusion in God's kingdom, from slavery to sin to slavery to Christ. All of that happens instantaneously, the moment we put our faith in Jesus. Now, we won't necessarily know when we cross the line, and it's probably not really that helpful to think of it as a line. Uh, but suffice to say that God will know when we have put our faith in him. He will know that. He sees our hearts. And that transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that being put right with God, is uh, often referred to as justification. Justification. Uh, but as every Christian knows, and probably those closest to them know even better, that doesn't mean that we are suddenly made perfect. perfect perfection will come, uh, but not in this life. However, that process of being perfected, of being made more like Jesus, of reflecting more of God's image, of being made holy, uh, that process begins in the here and now. And that process is often referred to as sanctification. So justification is that being made right with God, that being declared not guilty. It happens instantly when we put our faith in Jesus. Sanctification is that process that will last our whole life, that process of becoming more like Jesus. So our being put right with God uh, does not make us perfect, but it does give us a new direction. Justification will always lead to sanctification. Living in obedience to our new master, to Jesus, will take us in a new direction, no matter who we are. We're not just talking about the total wretch 
whose life does a metaphorical 180-degree turn when he puts his faith in Jesus. You know, someone like the Apostle Paul, who went from being a violent persecutor of the church to being the church's most zealous advocate. Some people's sins aren't quite so obvious to other people and maybe even to themselves. But when we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit will begin to put his finger on stuff in our lives. Our new master will point out that he wants things done very differently, will be convicted of sin, and will begin to realize just how much we need to change. And the emphasis there is on how much we need to change. Uh, I think we all expend far too much emotional energy thinking about how much other people need to change. But Romans 6, you know, when we read Romans 6, in fact, it's not just about Romans 6. When we read the New Testament, when we read the Bible, it is not about pointing the finger. It is about standing in front of the mirror. When it comes to self-examination, there are two ends of the spectrum. Uh, Firstly, there are those who simply don't examine themselves, and that includes people who profess uh, to be Christians. They don't really show any uh, interest in their direction of travel. Um, verse 22 says this but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life the benefit you reap leads to holiness if we put our faith in Jesus we have been set free from sin and there will especially over time there will be some evidence of that in our lives And increasingly, it will become more and more evident that we serve Jesus. That is the master who we serve. We ought to look. We ought to look for signs of this process of sanctification happening in our lives. If over a period of years, there is absolutely no difference in our character, in the way that we live, in our thought life, or in anything else, then yet it might be worth asking the question, have I really put my faith in Jesus? But then there's the other end of the the, the spectrum. Christians who examine their lives with a sense of failure and frustration. They have put their faith in Jesus, but they're struggling to live it out, and they wonder why there's not much change occurring. Well, I think there are two very important things that we could say to that. Firstly, we must recognize the truth about ourselves. Verse 6 says, For we know, for we know that our old self was crucified. If you are in Christ, your old self that is, that was ruled by sin is dead. It is not that the old self is undergoing a lingering process of dying. That old self is dead. Think back to the slave who died and rose again, now serving his new master, the king, who saved him from that cruel master's power. Supposing he's running an errand and he bumps into his old master. And the old master uh, starts trying to intimidate him, bark orders at him, give him commands, tell him what to do. Well, what is the slave to do in that situation? He must remind himself that he is no longer under the old master's authority. He only has one legitimate master, the new one. Sin no longer has a hold over him. 
He can refuse his old master's commands. And that is true for us. Sin can no longer be forced upon us. Let me say that again. Sin can no longer be forced upon us. It doesn't mean that we won't sit, uh, that we won't struggle with sin, but it does mean that sin no longer has mastery over us. But it's not enough for us to refuse our old master. We must also live a life of devoted service to our new one. I think this is often where we fall down as Christians. We think, okay, I'm supposed to have a new life, a new master, and a new direction, but I'm not seeing much difference. But if we're not actively seeking to serve our new master, then we won't see very much difference. I mean, think about the basic Christian disciplines of prayer and fasting, Bible study, living generously, worship, fellowship. Uh, These are the things that aid that process of sanctification. Without them, we're not going to see very much progress in the Christian life. As Christians, we do have a new life, a new master, and a new direction. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is the most wonderful news. May our lives increasingly reflect the reality of this as we refuse our old master and dedicate ourselves wholeheartedly to our new one. As it says in verse 13, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have moved us from death to life. And we recognize that uh, we do struggle with sin. But I pray, Father, that you'll also help us to realize that our old sinful self is dead. No longer has any authority over us. And so, Father, I pray that we continue as we go through the week, as we go through our lives, to remind ourselves of this fact. That sin can no longer be forced upon us. That sin no longer has any mastery over us. We recognize this is all because of what you have done for us. Nothing to do with what we have done. But we pray that the reality of this might be seen in our lives. That each one of us here will make progress in the Christian life. Year by year, we'll see this process of sanctification happening. We pray, Lord, that we won't be discouraged by the setbacks and the pitfalls. We know that we all encounter those things. But we pray over time, we will see that your Holy Spirit is bringing that change and transformation to our lives. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.